listening to Clouser on Business. Thanks for coming back. I'm Clouser, your host. Thanks for being with us today. People continue to strive each day to be better on a personal front. And if you happen to be a leader in a business, then I don't have to tell you that within businesses, people are looking for ways to do things more efficiently and in a more creative way to increase their net profit. And if that can be done by utilizing human resources to where employees are best engaged, then both the company and the employees are winners. So whether you're the leader or the employee who follows and takes directions from the leader, our podcast today will be very beneficial. I'm happy to have back as a guest today Jim Grew of the Grew Company to discuss how in his new book, The Leader Architect, The Right People in the Right Places Doing the Right Stuff, where he addresses some of the challenges leaders face and to suggest some solutions to those challenges. Hey, well, welcome back to the podcast, Jim. Thanks, Clouser. Hey, so uh, please remind our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do to help serve your clients. Well, I'm a leadership expert. Uh, After running eight businesses, uh, I've learned to appreciate the importance of a leader, and my focus is in two areas. One is in coaching senior leaders uh, to help them perform better, uh, and and that includes CEOs. Uh, And the other is to work with leadership teams to improve their performance. A significant portion of my clients are owners and heads of their own businesses. Okay, very good. Um, So uh, you've written a book before. Uh, Remind our listeners uh, that book was on transition, correct? Uh, The title is The Other Side of Succession, Uh, and its focus was owners of businesses as they move past age 50 and realize they're going to die, and they face the question of what do I do now and how do I preserve the business and take care of my people and take care of my retirement, and the book is is about how to do that. Mm -hmm. So what, what prompted you to write a second book, Jim? Uh, well, like most of you, I've I've read a number of leadership and b- business books, and most of them seem to me to be focused on a single idea repeated around a bunch of stories. Uh, and often uh, the ideas are sound good, but are difficult to implement. So the business that uh, the book I wrote is designed to address the gap between theory and practice, or to help a, a leader actually apply proven theories. Uh, effectively and quickly. Mm-hmm. So uh, you begin your new book by discussing myths and how those myths might ruin a business. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, sure. Uh, so a, a myth is something that we believe, whether we talk about it or not, uh, and it impacts our behavior. Uh, a myth would be, for example, that my teenage kid hates me, when in fact your, my teenage kid is a teenager, and that's part of their job description. Uh, But the myth is an idea that I hold in my head, uh, and the fact that it's seldom articulated or or spoken out loud doesn't make it less powerful. It is, in fact, a major factor uh, on people's performance. So uh, an example of a myth, of course, is that the boss doesn't care about the people in the company, uh, which is absurd. If you, most of the, yes, there are a few. Most of the bosses I know uh, in fact, tell stories about things they've done quietly that most of their employees don't realize it designed to take care of them. Uh, for example, they will loan money to employees that are in trouble uh, at no interest, uh, deduct it from the paycheck, uh, and there's no conversation, and eventually the, the money's paid back. Uh, so that's a myth. The second myth um, 
is that there's a lot of conversation about changing process, process improvement, lean manufacturing, and so forth. Uh, in fact, what has to change is the behavior of the people. If not, the, this process outlined by the engineers never gets implemented. And so the myth is that if you do a process improvement, things will get better. No, they won't if you leave out the people. Or another myth is that people can't be trusted. They won't do the right thing unless I force them, when in fact, if they're clear about the goal and they understand what's in their interest in that regard, they will move toward the goal. Uh, yes, a few people won't, uh, but they're outliers. Yeah, okay, so let's... Uh if we took one of those myths that you're talking about, uh, I, I found in my career that myths are, they become more believable as more people talk about them and maybe reinforce a falsehood about something. You know, what if, you know, if I was a leader, what might be one thing I would do to, you know, so I just don't accept something haphazardly? Well, first, listen carefully so you understand what your, your employee's belief is. Uh, and and I, I'm talking to myself as well as you. Uh, we tend to move quickly and be impatient as leaders and therefore miss the real message. So listen, listen carefully and then point to the data. Uh, there's a reason you believe what you believe. There's a reason they believe what they believe. And you can move the discussion from I'm right and you're wrong to, well, what's the information about this? What gives you the idea? What have you seen that causes you to think that? Listen very carefully and gently, and usually you'll discover differences in the data that will help bridge the gap. Yeah, and I think in a follow-up to what you said earlier, too, is just because we implement some procedure to change something doesn't mean we're going to get, you know, immediate uh, success. It, you know, good things take hard work to get. Y yes. Well, there's an interesting – I'm writing about that this, this week, actually. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal – uh, which basically says that uh, a large number of businesses now are not investing in robots, uh, but rather investing in improved performance by people, the, the implication that uh, robots, robots would re replace people, uh, for two reasons. One is the payback is shorter, uh, and in a time where it's difficult to forecast uh, what's going to happen, uh, it's hard to rely on long-term return. Uh, and the other one is that the Im impact can be implemented quickly, but the connection is that it's focused on the behavior of the people. So, for example, it's focused on either training people or skill building or clarifying their particular goal. Uh, a good example of that, um, a client of mine in the construction business uh, said that one of the best ways to get a, a team to stay on time, and time is one of the two factors in construction, is to put an orange cone down there and say, we need to get to the cone by the end of the day. And, and it's really simple-minded, and it absolutely works. You can imagine in your own circumstance. Mm -hmm. So uh, teamwork's a key in any business. You have some ideas on this, which include uh, getting the right people together. You approach it from a uh, pairs uh, perspective. Uh, why, why is that, Jim? Well, it struck me that the, um, the core unit of relationship is a pair, meaning two people. And so if you imagine that a team uh, is a collection of pairings, and it turns out that the number of pairings uh, is the number of teams minus one, not number of members of the team uh, minus one, which is um, the mathematical formula, 
uh, you will see that there is a number of relationships in that team. If you focus on the pairs and develop relationships that are healthy between pairs, uh, then those healthy relationships are a foundation for trust. I, I typically trust, if I am one uh, of a team, I will trust other individuals in the team. I don't trust a thing such as a team. Um, that's a group in the room. So the, the essence is to move the point from, from or the target from a group of people to individual pairings. And if you have an, an executive team that's not working well, one of the questions is which pair isn't working well together? That's a question that you can help answer. Yeah, would there be, uh, not to, uh, to steal your secret sauce here out of the book, but so uh, following this uh, idea, what would be the best approach to find the, the right two people to work with to begin with? Well, I'm focused on the leadership team because that's where my work is, uh, and that team is going to meet to in some kind of regular working relationship, and you can observe which people don't work together. Clues are things you already know, such as, when person A talks, person B is writing on their phone, looking the other way. Uh, the person B doesn't know what the other person said. Uh, Snickers looks down on the idea. Uh, so if you're looking, you will see the clues very quickly about which pairs get along and which don't. Before you get to ideas such as who has coffee together, who goes for a walk together, who has lunch together. And I, I'm not saying that if, unless people have lunch together, they can't work well. Uh, that's crazy. But once you look at it, this is not a secret of a psychologist. You'll see where the pairs are rough, and then you can explore what can be done to make that better. Yeah. So uh, if one more question on that, if I could. So are we looking for uh, two people that maybe uh, sharpen one another, and if they were friends doing the coffee, golf together, maybe they would be too complacent within their relationship to keep, other, keep each other challenged? Oh, that's a great idea. Yes, the, I didn't talk about that. But the other, the other idea is when people always agree, uh, there's a problem. Because if you're leading a business, uh, the topics that get into the room typically are unresolved questions. And if what you're seeing is people who agree and don't, don't argue, uh, your question would be, do they understand the problem? Are they willing to confront? Are they willing to do the hard work? Uh, and frequently, it isn't that they're lazy, but there will be some other reason they choose not to have the discussion, and it's worth asking. So, gosh, I watched, I watched you in the room uh, yesterday, and it seemed that everything that John said you'd agreed with. Is that true? You agree with everything John says? And then be quiet and listen. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, a little bit further in your book, uh, I was taken back a little bit uh, because you suggest a business needs two sets of books. Now, you know, I'm in finance and accounting, so this isn't a culinary uh, podcast where we're talking about cooking the books. Uh, so what do you, what's the context uh, where you say that uh, you suggest to a company they need two sets of books? That's a great question. I mean, people uh, assume that the measures are monthly financials, uh, P&L statement, balance sheet, uh, some kind of a cash management instrument. Those are critical and important, but they're not enough. The, the problems with monthly measures are for many companies, they are not produced until the third week of the following month, which means that there is a seven-week lag. I'll say that again, a seven-week lag between a situation and uh, action to resolve it. Yes, that's the worst case, but the lag is built in. Further, 
the structure of the monthly financials can easily obscure a problem, and unless someone is looking carefully for modest trend numbers, it takes quite a while to spot something that's a problem. So in addition, not in, instead of, but in addition to monthly financials, uh, I found that measuring a few key elements every week, measuring the same ones every week, the same day at the same time with the same report, and showing everybody in the company, uh, for example, uh, how much we shipped in either dollars or units, will impact behavior that day. And so if people see the numbers from yesterday and say, wow, we're not going to make our week for shipment numbers, most employees want to do well, and they know if sales are down, somebody's hours are going to get cut. They will be answering the correct question, which is what can we do today to get back on path to hit our numbers for the week? Uh, and it's that simple. There may be three or four measures, and by the way, those measures should always be at the back door of the business uh, just before things are shipped, not in the middle of the operation. And the reason for that is that something in the middle of the operation can look out of whack but may come back by the end, and trying to solve the problem in the middle of the business may not improve the final result. Yeah, and there'll, there'll be some listening to this, Jim, uh, to that point that – well, that's impossible. How can you do that or whatever? I've been there. I've done it myself. And if you have the right reporting or, or uh, you know, insist on the right reporting within your organization, you can get that information and get it in front of everybody's uh, eyes the next day. And like you were saying, the closer you have your eyes to the activity that causes those uh, results, the better off you'll be. So, so uh in Chapter 5 of your book, which is titled The Right Things at the Right Time, two things that struck me here. Uh, you talk about delegation and another on the pros and cons of employee family members. So let's take the delegation first, but I'm really interested in the pros and cons of hiring <laughs> family members. All right. Well, <laughs> the, the delegation uh, for openers is, is like the weather. Everybody talks about it. Few people are really good at it. I have recent experience with a client where the senior leaders uh, were so um, awkward at delegating that we finally ran a brief tutorial, and even with a step-by-step -step method, uh, several finally said, you know, I just can't do it. Well, the problem uh, in simple terms is that if people don't delegate, and delegate is, is not just a handoff, we'll come back to that, the capacity of the business is limited to their ability to do things personally. And one of the tricks in productivity is to get more done with the same number of people. And the, the part of delegation that people don't understand, frankly, uh, the parts are two. One, a very clear task, tasks are seldom explained clearly, and then a very specific follow-up. How did you do? What is in the way? And this sounds so elementary, it can't manage, or it can't matter, but it's how you do it. And the people who are really good at execution do this. They, they simply do it. Uh, uh, look, let me ask you a question while you're on that topic. So uh, when you're working with your clients, uh, one of the things I've seen with delegation is the person delegating truly, really letting go to where the person that the task has been delegated to can be taken with no inhibitions to start off with. So yeah. great, great point, Clouser. That one of the tools to help with that is who's got the monkey. Uh, and strangely, this is a forty-year-old idea that some understand and many have never heard of. And the monkey is who owns the decision. 
And an effective leader will always hand back the monkey, realizing that his people or her employees will want the boss to either solve the problem or take it over or participate in the solution. So the short answer is never keep the monkey handed back. And when it's not clear who owns the monkey, it's not clear who's doing the work, which is a simple answer. And you know when you're in the room whether you're the one that's going to make it happen or the other person is. And unless you know they're going to do it, you got the monkey. Okay. And then uh, on the topic of uh, hiring my brother-in-law, maybe my wife or somebody. Oh, this one is romanticized, I think, way way out of uh, bounds. Uh, There are stories, of course, of awful family situations. There were, there will be, there are. um, And those uh, seem to be more obvious. If they're egregious, they end up as disputes resolved by lawyers and and CPAs. That's not the issue in my mind. The issue is what do we do with somebody who is pretty competent, who wants to be, let's be dramatic and say, CEO, And it's clear that, barring a miracle, this person can't hack the job. And the answer isn't miraculous. It's remove the the family label and define what is the job, what are the key qualifications, and evaluate the person, frankly, just as you would an internal candidate or an external candidate for a particular job. Where this gets into trouble is when businesses try to structure the business around the people they have, which is backwards, Instead of looking at the correct structure for the current business and the future business, what should the leadership structure be, and then what are the requirements for each of these positions, and then stand up each individual against the requirements. And the question then is, can they learn what is needed? Can they be taught what is needed? And if not, what are they good at, and where else could they serve the business? And it turns out that that I'm a parent. I have two grown daughters and nine grandchildren, and you care about your kids. But if you understand that putting a kid in a failure position is cruel and can destroy their self-worth, uh, you think twice before giving in to their well-intentioned pleas. Almost always, an outsider can have the conversation with a second or third generation person and talk frankly about what do you like, what do you see yourself doing, what really appeals to you, which moves the conversation in the correct way. Not, I want to be a title, but what do you love? I have a client right now who, uh, and I've worked with him for five years. He's in his late 40s. Uh, He was, by all outside appearances, enormously successful, CEO of a very successful family business. Uh, He has stepped back from and out of that business because he hated it. He didn't like the job. He didn't like the work he had to do. And he's quietly started a second business uh, on the side. His family knows about it. Uh, and he's thriving, and so is, his, so is his business. So it's partly, as always, a matter of matching skills with the business needs. Yeah. When you're working with your clients in a family business, uh, as you were describing, uh, it, it, I think the other aspect is how the, fa- the other family members cause uh, rift with the rest of the team or the rest of the employees with the company because there's a, a an unwritten rule I think or belief talking about myths uh, that uh, you really can't talk to them because it's going to go back you know to the you know you can't really be transparent I guess maybe when you're talking to them because you're afraid that it's going to go back up to the top and what you're sharing might fall on deaf ears or be be interpreted 
another way. It's a real question, and of course, the real answer to me is the problem is the lack of transparency or a leader who leaves the impression that she doesn't want to hear the truth. That's the problem, not the particular concern of a particular employee, because the fact is businesses are complicated, and if you have 250 or 400 employees, they have all kinds of wishes and hopes and needs. And the question is it's sometimes helpful to ask what does the business need uh, and what the business needs then can be addressed. And if you are uh, an employee not feeling like you're being treated fairly, uh, it frankly doesn't matter whether you're in the company, in the family or not. You may be surprised to hear me say that. But the question is about what are the specifics of the unfair treatment? So the, the simple formula, which is not simple, is to treat family members like employees of the same business as much as possible. Yes, they get more slack. Yes, they get more training. But they ultimately need to perform because if they don't, the business will have troubles, as everybody knows. Okay. So a little bit further in your book, uh, you talk about uh, it's more important uh, to key on your response to an event and uh, what you do about it rather than the event itself. Uh, that's Clouser's paraphrase there. So uh, why is this important? Sure. Well, several ideas about that. Um, one is that it's easier to bemoan the event than it is to do the hard work of figuring out what to do about it. And the leader's job is to move the point of the conversation to what can we do about it, and should we do anything about it? The event is the event. It's happened. It's in the past. You can't go back and fix it. And if there are feelings about it, then those feelings might need to be addressed. It depends. Uh, sadly, uh, one of my clients, and this is a business with 700 employees, um, had an employee who committed suicide. Terrible experience. Very upsetting to the people in the company. And that event was so traumatic that there was a series of actions taken by the leadership in the company to support that person's family and the employees. So that's one where the event is the event, but you don't just move on, clearly. And I could describe the, the actions, but I think you're aware of it. Short of that, uh, as soon as possible, the question is, what do we do about it, not what, what drove us to do this? Uh, and because that, there's no payday there. Mm -hmm. There's just not. Okay. So in your final chapter, you discuss resilience. So why, why is it important as a leader or as an employee to possess uh, this as an attribute? Well, I believe that confidence in a leader is essential um, for, for many reasons, um, one of which is employees will follow a person that they have confidence in, and the confidence comes not from belief that the person is always right, but they will try to do the, the, the right thing and take care of the people in the process. It turns out that if you know that you're resilient, <clears throat> you will have the confidence to make decisions. If you doubt your resilience, you force yourself to be perfect. And last time I checked, nobody's perfect, no business is perfect, and problems are going to happen. Mistakes will occur. And so creating a place where resilience is, is what people do resilience is rewarded, the ability to figure out what do we do now is recognized publicly, that can be even more important than hitting the weekly or monthly numbers. 
It's rare. Uh, and in my mind, it's the thing that separates the great ones from the good ones. Mm-hmm. So um, we live obviously in an ever-changing world and business environments change with it. Uh, What should business leaders uh, be constantly aware of as, you know, every day brings forth new challenges? A a great question. I'm thinking about two sides of this. One is be a learner, and that means be a reader. Um, Learn that your opinion probably isn't right and form the habit of asking people, uh, why do you think that? asking that question when you read whatever it is you read, because there's always an opinion and a reason for and a reason why, uh, because this pulls for some understanding of what's going on. Because the question is, should you chase after this problem or not? And most of the problems that matter are very, very complicated. So one is be a learner, uh, and I believe in reading and asking why. Uh, and not being afraid to say, what, what is the evidence for that? What brings you to that conclusion with other people who have a point of view that's different from yours? Because you might be wrong. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's an interesting commentator who says, and I believe this, most of us are wrong most of the time. <laughs> and to the extent we can see that some of the time, we do better. Uh, the changing world just speeds things up. And the idea that it's been working well and therefore we're fine, of course, that that makes my skin crawl and it should make yours crawl uh, because it is changing. Now, that said, there are, I believe there are fundamentals in leadership and behavior that don't change much. Uh, people want to be secure enough in their business so that they can have the autonomy and the, the ability to use their particular skills and a chance to be recognized for what they contribute and those two things are are crucial. They're actually more important than raises and bonuses, it turns out. Uh, and that's one of the ways to respond in a world that's changing all the time because the change is going to happen. Yeah, so um, there's uh, 10 chapters in your new book. Obviously, with the limited time we have on the podcast, uh, we couldn't touch base uh, on all of it. But in closing, uh, Jim, uh, why why – why is it important for leaders and employees uh, to pick up a copy of your new book? Uh, if you're leading people, uh, then your challenge is how to do this a little better. And this book comes at that question from a, def- a number of different positions. It looks at a number of different levels in the business, and it's likely that you will find useful tips and information in this book um, written by uh, someone who's made a lot of mistakes and been successful running a bunch of businesses, which really means leading different groups of people. There will be something in there for you if you look for it. Mm-hmm. Well, we're out of time for today. Uh, thanks again to Jim Grew of the Grew Company for being with us today to talk leadership and to uh, discuss the principles in his new book titled The Leader Architect, The Right People in the Right Places Doing the Right Stuff. Uh, Jim, when's the book available and where can they get that book? The book will come out December 1st. It will be uh, it is on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, the independent booksellers and at Powell's right now on their websites. Um, if you uh, look up Leader Architect, you will go right to the site. They are taking pre-orders now. Uh, the publisher tells me the book will be delivered and available for sale December 1st. I have no reason to doubt them. But there's no reason to wait. And my fantasy, of course, is that thousands of people will order the book and it won't be available by then. I, I doubt that that's the case. 
There's one other idea that a friend of mine suggested, which is this. Uh, when you're looking for a Christmas present for leaders that you know, whether it's a son or a daughter or a customer or a supplier, give them a copy of this book, and I think they'll thank you. They might not, but I think they will. It's easy to do. Uh, Amazon is the best place to get it, I think, uh, unless that's a somebody you don't want to do business with, then there are three other places. Yeah. There was one question I didn't ask you, Jim, uh, is the leader architect, that part of the title. Where where did that come from? Because I think that's really a very descriptive uh, title. Well, thank you. I wish I'd thought of it. Uh, My title wasn't as good. The publisher actually came up with the title. I didn't like it when they came up with it. I asked a a friend of mine who's experienced in this world, and I said, does the publisher get to name the title of the book? He said, yep. He didn't say any more. I said, that's it. He said, yep. So it it turns out they knew what they were doing. I think it's a cool title. Uh, and, And what it says is there are ways that you can architect your own leadership, if you will pardon the verb in that way. Mm-hmm. Hey, well, you can uh, find out more about Jim on our guest page on our website, clouseronbusiness.com, and learn more about Clouser uh, there, too. We have just did a, uh, a revamp on our website there, some changes, so uh, would look forward to your comments and hearing from you. Uh, please remember to tell your friends about us and to like our podcast on iTunes, TuneIn, Podbean, Stitcher Radio. As always, you can find us at clouseronbusiness.com. Well, all for now, you've been listening to Clouser on Business.